Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, making his debut to the show. It's been a, it's been a long time coming. It's Tyler Dello. Tyler, what's going on, man? Hey, Dimitri, not much. How you doing, pal? <laughs> I'm doing well. It's been uh, it's been a few days since we chatted. We we hung out quite a bit in Boston at Sloan, which was pretty fun. Have you uh, have you sorted out that spontaneous bleeding situation you had going on? Yeah, actually, okay. Well, this is. Uh, let's 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 explain this. So we this were is really inside baseball for those that weren't there. Very inside baseball. We were doing the panel together at Sloan, and I cut myself shaving that morning, and right before we went on, it started bleeding again, and it would not stop. And so I thought I had it under control when we were starting. And, um, you know, I, I said to you, I was sitting, sitting next to Hillary Knight, and I said, if, if, if you notice it's bleeding, just give me a shove and I'll go deal with it. And I guess we were too far apart for her to do anything because I realized at some point, I'm like, oh, this isn't good. And so I jumped off, and finally somebody in the audience had a Band-Aid. And mm-hmm. she came over, provided me with a Band-Aid, so I managed to get back up and do it. But it's funny, you know, like Sloan being Sloan. Afterwards, I was telling this story to, I think it was Matt Cain and Ryan Stimson, and someone else was there. And um, this other person, I guess just a random scientific guy, he's like, oh, yeah, if you cut a mole, it will bleed forever because, I don't know, there's blood vessels or something. I got like a five-minute explanation about why that's <laughs> a bad thing to do. So uh, the downside was that I cut myself and it wouldn't stop bleeding. The upside is that someone was there to explain why. Yeah, I mean, and also it was like a very hockey panel thing of us to do to someone just start randomly bleeding. Um, so we fit right in. It, it fits with the sport. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Tyler, it's a little- I've been I've been telling you for a while. I mean, nothing good can come from shaving. Just just don't do it. Uh, yes, no. That's that seems to be the advice I'm getting from all the young people with uh, with your beards and such. But, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I know you. Well, you're good Serbian stuff. Yes. You people can grow beards. Right. Uh, I, my people don't seem to do it so well. Yeah, yeah. That's no, good. That's a good point. Um, all right, let's 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 get into this. I think 
we'll talk about a bit about Sloan and all sorts of other sort of uh, various NHL topics, but I think it'd be a bit disingenuous for us to start this show anywhere than other discussing your time in Edmonton a little bit, just because I feel like fans are, are always itching for a chance to kind of get a peek behind the curtain and a glimpse of what's really happening behind the scenes with their favorite teams. And you obviously got to live it out a bit for a few years there. So um, I don't want to put you in like an uncomfortable spot or, or, you know, get you to open up old wounds or, or talk about stuff you're not, you're not very uh, comfortable talking about but i think there's there's some insightful stuff we can get into get into with that oh yeah no it was a it was a fantastic experience you know like anybody who is interested in this stuff and gets a chance to learn you know how people run hockey teams who've had a lot of success doing it like uh, like peter and craig and um kevin and scott um you know it's it's a wonderful opportunity and i know a lot more about how things work and you know have formed some of my own opinions uh, than I did before. So, hmm. so yeah, no, it was a great experience. It was, um, you know, the, the really interesting part for me was working with, uh, with Dallas and Dallas wasn't really somebody I knew a ton before he got hired by the Oilers. Um, I, I subsequently found out sort of secondhand. I think he used to read my website. So, uh, cause he's, he's kind of an interesting character. He's really interested in um, sort of finding edges. Like it's funny in 2015, Dallas was at Sloan, uh, and I happened to be there that year as well. And it was interesting, like we were sitting in on a fitness panel talking about sort of um, training athletes for, for sports like hockey, right? Like where there's a lot of short, high intensity uh, bursts. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing because like the sports science side of things isn't really something that I was all that familiar with. And I still wouldn't say I'm familiar with it, but I've gotten kind of interested in it. Um, through through knowing Dallas, and uh, I've kind of gotten into cycling as well, and and, it, and that's very much a science driven sport. But it was funny sitting in it because I said to Dallas like halfway through, I was like, everything these guys are saying, I've heard from you, or I've heard from a guy by the name of Dean Golich, who was working with the Oilers at the time as a um, kind of fitness consultant. And Dean trains all sorts of uh, high performance athletes. I think he's done some work with the military as well. So. It was kind of a, a case where I think, you know, Dallas is constantly, you know, he's the kind of coach who's always looking for an edge. And so he and I, um, he and I got to know each other uh, sort of over the course of the 2013-14 season. I spoke at a presentation or the Oilers had a coaching seminar at the start of 2013 mm-hmm. and um, I got invited out. So I went out and did a little chat and uh, and I talked to Dallas a little bit afterwards and you know, beyond that, we didn't talk too much in 2013-14, but at the summer of 2014, he, he emailed me and he said, look, you know, you do some interesting stuff. And he said, you know, I want to float your name around to a few places if that's all right with you. And I was like, sure, you know, that was great. He didn't owe me anything. And I'd probably been more critical of Dallas than I had of any Oilers coach um, when I was writing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, and not to get off on a tangent, but like, I, I think it's really difficult to criticize coaching intelligently. I think it takes a lot of time to sort of figure out what are they doing, what are they supposed to be doing, and and does it make sense? Um, and, and, and you also have to figure out, like, what are the options available to the coach? Like, right. if the other guy's throwing out Patrice Bergeron and Zidane Chara, you don't have a good option. Yes. You know what I mean? Yep. No, that's... Yeah. So, sorry, I'll just, I'll just wrap this up. So, anyway, yeah, no, we got to know each other that way, and then one thing led to another, and, and there we were, uh, 2014. 
Yeah. Well, I, I imagine that, you know, he was probably one of the biggest proponents or biggest supporters in the organization of bringing you on board to kind of help find some of those edges. And, you know, I was looking at, looking at the numbers because I was, it, it's been a few years now. So I was trying to jog my memory and what was going on in Edmonton at the time. And, you know, for a few years there, the Oilers were at like a 43, 44%, uh, Corsi team, which was like in the bottom three or four in the league. And then all of a sudden at the start of 2014, 15, it jumped up to like near 49%, which was quite a dramatic improvement. But but I, I, I imagine that, you know, he probably just got some poor puck luck and, and weren't winning a lot of games and, and he can ultimately wind up paying the price for that. Um, I don't want to get into why, you know, I think we didn't win. Ultimately, we didn't win enough. And when you don't win enough, uh, that's what happens in sports. And mm. that's all us. So, so, yeah, no, that was... Uh, that was too bad, but, um, you know, they say, there's a saying, I used to practice law, and they say in law that you win more from the, you learn more from the cases you lose than you do from the cases you win, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, so that was a great learning opportunity, and I know I certainly took a lot of uh, stuff away from that that will help me both writing and, you know, if I ever ultimately do uh, do something on the hockey side again. Yes, yeah, there were a lot of learning opportunities in those few years. Um so I think a big topic that we uh, kept harping on during our Sloan panel was finding a way to um, kind of take the next step with a lot of our analysis, just in the sense that, you know, for years now, we've been coming up with some really cool stuff and some new findings online, but we're, there's still that next hurdle to take in terms of actual um, application, whether it's, you know, down to an on-ice perspective, passing it along to coaches who are then using it with their players, or whether it's actually passing it along to your GMs or ownership and making player personnel decisions that way. Like, I imagine uh, that 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 was like a, a, a big, uh, big eye-opening or learning experience for you during your time there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like, I get, talking about the coaching, um, you know, like it's... It's funny, like when you're outside, if you haven't played pro hockey, um, you really have no idea how the coaching works as far as like what's their process mm-hmm. and how do they go about pulling information and giving it to their players and what's their process sort of on a day-to-day basis in terms of preparing for games. And, you know, a big thing I find with a lot of analytics stuff is, you know, I, I'll read it and I'll say, okay, if I was giving this to a coach... How would I make this actionable? Because you can't go to the coach and say, we give up too many shots. Right. You know, that's, that's not helpful. And so how do you make it smaller and make it actionable? And that's something, it's funny, I'm actually working on something, just finishing off right now for the athletic, looking at um, penalty killing and forwards. Mm-hmm. And that's an area, actually it's funny, that's, it's an area, one of the first times I talked to a hockey guy, he said to me, he's like, you guys worry too much about five on five. You know, what about special teams? Right. And he was absolutely right. And, and so I've tried to sort of throw some more of my own attention at that. And I've noticed like the community's doing a really good job of there's more stuff coming up with that, particularly I think with five on four, because it's kind of sexy and the big names are involved. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. And I've, I'm interested in four on five. So, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm working now on sort of coming up with ways where you can, you know, measure players in ways that you could give it to a coach or give it to a manager and say, look, this is a problem. This is a problem. And it's a discrete thing where, you know, they can make a choice as far as using somebody differently. Um, But basically, I really think a lot of, you know, what you're doing with analytics, you know, it's great if you can find a solution on your own. But if you can define a problem very, very tightly, and then you're working with people who have a lot of expertise in hockey, they can frequently come up with a solution to it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think that here's like something that we need to get better at. And I, I know that especially back when you were still writing for your own blog, like you, you would do this a lot. And, and I, I really admired it just that, you know, not every article you write or everything that you, you, you discuss has to necessarily have like a convenient answer at the end of it or a conclusion. Like it's okay to uh, just raise critical questions and kind of question whether the beliefs that we've had all this time were right in the first place or whether we should be evolving. And like the penalty kill and power plays is, is, is a great example of that. Like there's so much stuff in hockey these days that it's like you ask someone, well, why aren't you doing this? Or why haven't you, have you ever thought about maybe using your players this way? And the common refrain you get back is, well, not really, because it's just always been done this way. And I, I always kind of find that to be an amusing answer because it, it's, 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 it's such an easy thing to say, but it like doesn't actually mean anything if you think about it. Yeah, no, that's, and it's funny. I, and I can't remember, like I read so much sports stuff that I start to remember the context for it, but there's, there's two things that come to mind to me there. The first is that uh, it's a line about Bill James, I think, talking about preferring, um, a, um, you know, an honest mess to a tidy lie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's fine to say, look, you know, um, this is where I think the data can take us. Beyond this, I don't know. Right. Um, as opposed to being super conclusive um, and glossing over maybe some, some areas of critique or challenge. So I definitely think there's something there. And then, you know, the other, the, the second half of that, uh, I've lost my train of thought, but there's a, there's a second, <laughs> I, I knew that was going to happen. Trying to remember two anecdotes at once is yeah. hard. But the second half of that really, um, to me is, oh, oh, if we, you know, if we were starting today, is this the way we do it? Right. Right. Because so much stuff kind of evolves in practice over years. And, you know, sometimes it's good. Um, but sometimes I think, you know, teams or hockey kind of gets trapped into something. And and it's good to say, like, if we were starting this today, is this the way we do it? And, and I think you've seen examples in hockey. Like, you know, one example for me is kind of like there's been a real decline in sort of pure fighters. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I don't think analytics can really take any credit for that, although it's something that um, that, you know, a lot of us sort of said, look, you know, it's hard to believe that. The sort of the, the mystique around these guys makes makes a lot of sense, and you're better off if you have somebody to play. I don't think that's what happened here, but I think what happened was a lot of coaches and managers were asking themselves some sort of variant of the question: If we were starting this today, is this the way we do it? And they came to the conclusion that no, you know, we'd rather have a guy on the fourth line who can give us something on the penalty kill or whatever. And as a result, um, every time one of those guys disappeared. The next guy asking himself, if we, if we started this today, is this the way we do it? There was one fewer fighter around the league he had to worry about, which made the answer uh, no that much stronger. Yeah, I, I think that it, it, that's a great point about if we started from scratch right now, like I think the game would look uh, dramatically different. And, and, and one particular sticking point, I think, with people is just the p- positional names, how we've sort of boxed uh, guys in. Like, I think the, the term defenseman is a great example because it just like paints this picture of that's just so different from what's actually going on right now in 2017, where we're still struggling with uh, what a defenseman is supposed to look like or what a good defensive play is. And I just think like, if you change the name all of a sudden to like a soccer term, like a back or something, or even like a, a, a guard, like, like in basketball, like I think that would uh, just change our perception and the way we evaluate the position so much more. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like I kind of think of hockey as being sort of like soccer 
but with players filling different positions at different times. Mm-hmm. So when a team has the pocket going forward, it's almost like they don't have any defenders. What they have are midfielders and, uh, and strikers. And then when they're defending, it's almost like they don't have any strikers. It's like they have midfielders and defenders. So it's sort of like a game. It's kind of like soccer. If you compress the pitch down to 200 feet by 85 or whatever, and then if you, if you then got rid of a bunch of the players and said to some of the other players, you have to fill multiple roles. So I agree with you. Like, I think the term defenseman, like it does, you know, people, people kind of get hung up on the fact, well, you know, does he defend? Does he defend? And it kind of misses the point that that's maybe, maybe half the job. And the other half the job is, you know, being a midfielder when your team has the puck or when your team's going forward. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to pitch you on a, an idea I've been mulling over back and forth in my head for a, for a few weeks here. But uh, before we do that, let's, let's pay some bills and hear from a sponsor. We actually haven't done one of these in a while, but I've got some exciting news to share with all of you. Uh, we've got SeatGeek back on as a sponsor of the PDO cast, and hopefully that'll help save you guys a bunch of time and money in your pursuit of tickets to watch your favorite hockey team play. Uh, for those of you that haven't used it before, I can't recommend giving it a try enough, honestly. Um, you know, from personal experience, I was just in Boston this past week for the Sloan Hockey Analytics Conference, and beyond all of the cool, crazy smart people in the industry that I got to meet during my time there, one of the big reasons I was excited to go was just to get to check out some games in person. Uh, now, unfortunately, one of those games involved the New Jersey Devils, which wouldn't have necessarily been my pick of the litter, but just being in the building and indulging in the product as a fan was cool nonetheless. And all of that was thanks to SeatGeek and their incredibly easy-to-use mobile app. Uh, in just a couple of clicks, they basically searched mobile multiple ticket sites, compared prices, and found me the best deal possible. So to use SeatGeek yourself and to get your own $20 rebate on tickets, all you got to do is download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code PDO, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. So all you got to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today. Now let's get back to the show. All right. So here's my uh, here's my idea. Uh, let me know if this is completely crazy or if this is something you've thought about or if we're, if we're on the right track here. So we're just up based on the topic of, um, you know, power plays and penalty kills. We've seen uh, this shift. Uh, you've written about it in, in power plays going to more of a four forward one defenseman set uh, this year and, and even the year before. And obviously, it, I mean, it makes sense. We know that you're going to give up a bit more uh coming the other way but ultimately the the net gain is going to be positive because you're going to be generating so many more shots and so many goals and i I wonder what the next uh adjustment to that is on the on the flip side of things with penalty kills because that is has been an area that has been pretty slow to adapt and i just kind of wonder uh what we're going to see there to to kind of combat this this new uh offensive approach on on the power play uh, I have no idea, to be honest. Um, I, think that's, uh, I think that's a great question. Um, and it's interesting because I do think penalty kills learn. Like, if you look at Washington's power play this year, I think teams early in the year were finding a way to take away kind of the OB shot. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Like, I, I actually don't know what, what the answer to the question is if I was trying to solve it. Um, I think there's ways to identify penalty kills that are that are doing well against the four forward one D, and uh, and to look at what they're doing and see whether or not there's something in there that can be lifted and taken to uh, taken to your team. So you know, I, I guess I, I don't have an answer for you. I do have an approach on how to get an answer, and um, I'm sure someone will will do that at some point. 
Well, I have, I have, I have, a, I have a working theory. So, Do you for, have a working theory, Dimitri? Yes, a, li- a little one. I mean, obviously, we don't have any, uh, unfortunately, any sort of uh, statistical backbone here to kind of test this theory because it hasn't really been done yet. But just like if you're pivoting from the idea of, you know, if we were just starting from scratch right now, how would you model uh, your penalty kill and your approach? Like I've yet to hear a compelling argument for why teams are so insistent on using two forwards and two defensemen to kill penalties. Like why beyond just having to reprogram guys and make them kind of solve playing different positions. And maybe that's something you'd have to do in the off season or during training camp. But like what's stopping teams from going with three forwards and one defenseman to try and combat that and kind of have a more aggressive penalty kill where you're just like, you're trying to be on the attack as opposed to just conventionally sitting back and trying to eat up as many shots as you can in your shin pads. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'd worry about what happens once the puck gets played down low. Um, because I, I do think that defensemen are, they have a lot more experience dealing with plays in close to the net uh, from a defensive perspective than forwards do. Mm-hmm. And if you're running three forwards, one D, all of a sudden you have a guy down there who that's not what he's trained to do. And I'd be worried about passes getting through and and putting the goalie in a tough shot as far as or a tough spot as far as the shots he sees. But don't you think that speaks to uh, where we're at with hockey that like no one has ever even tried it even for uh, like a stretch of games? Like like what's stopping a team like the Avalanche or the Coyotes who really aren't going anywhere this season and have nothing to lose, just kind of trying it out on occasion and seeing if they, if they can stumble upon something to, to use moving forward? Yeah, um, no, I think that's a, like, I don't know, I, I'll be honest, I'm skeptical of that particular mm-hmm. idea. But um, but I do think in general you've got a really good point about teams that know they're not going somewhere. Like it is a good opportunity to try some things that, you know, maybe you've wondered about, but, um, you know, you've wondered about, but you've never really, you've never really tried. Now let's give you an example. Like, um, you know, I was talking about face-offs recently and I saw Paul Gostad, he taught himself to take face-offs um, either way. Mm-hmm. So if he was taking a face-off uh, on and on his left side, he'd take it, you know, on his backhand. And if he's on the right side, he'd flip his stick around and take it like he was a right-hander on his strong side. And so, you know, something like that, uh, I wouldn't want to be fooling around with that in games where they mattered. Right. If I had a bunch of guys, and particularly if I had some guys who really struggled on their on their weak side, you know, that's an opportunity to get some NHL reps. Um, you know, and exploring whether or not that's a solution to the problem. So, so I do agree with your general point that you know, if you're a team that's out of it, it's a good chance to kind of try things that you've that you've wondered about, but you've never really um, you've never really put into practice. Well, I guess you kind of got to weigh and, and balance the opportunity cost because, you know, maybe you stumble upon something, but you don't really want to uh, show it off to the rest of the league while you're not going to actually be tangibly benefiting from it. Like maybe you're kind of just like saving it in your back pocket for when you're actually competitive and have a chance to win games that matter. So I guess that that would be the argument for why you wouldn't want to showcase too much, you know, new innovative stuff when you're not really going anywhere. Yeah, although, you know, there's nothing stopping you from trying it for a couple of games, and if it works, just putting it away. Um, like, I think something that's really underappreciated is how difficult um, pre-scouting is in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, they call it pre-scouting, and it's, I've never understood that, because nobody talks about post-scouting. They don't <laughs> do a video review, they don't do a post-scout, but you do a pre-scout. And, you know, and I was talking about this with some of the people down at Sloan this weekend, but I really do think hockey's the most complicated sport from a coaching perspective. Um, in terms of the complexity of the game and the frequency of the games, 
So, you know, you look at soccer, they're playing at, at most twice a week. And um, there's 11 guys on the pitch and maybe three substitutes. So it's a pretty standard thing. You look at basketball. What do they, what do they play with? An eight or nine man rotation? Mm-hmm. Yep. So they have the same frequency, maybe a little more games as hockey. But your rotation is much simpler than a hockey team's rotation, which I'll come to. And so is the other guys. So when you're game planning, it's a lot more straightforward. Um, football, one game a week. Super complex sport, but one game a week. Baseball, um, you know, you're playing series of three games. So basically you have one or two opponents, uh, well, two opponents to prepare for per week. Right. So, and, 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 and even then, you know, like it's, it's, there's one pitcher per game or one starting pardon me, pitcher per game for the other team. And then you think about hockey, right? So to start with, you've got three main game states with game states with five on five, four on five, five on four. And then within those game states, you've got these ridiculous rotations where, you know, if you're the head coach of team a, you've got a five on five rotation of 12 forward 60. You, you've got uh, a five on four rotation of two units. And then you've got two, four on five rotations of, or two or three, four on five rotations of forwards and defensive. And the other guys got the same thing. So when you're going in to play the other team, uh, you know, particularly like say you're, you're at a conference, uh, and you're playing a team that played the night or you played the night before and you're playing again the next day, it's a team you're going to see twice all year and you don't have a ton of time to prepare. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, I, I think the fear of, so I, I guess my, my point, first of all, is that, um, you know, teams in the regular season are more limited by the schedule and complexity of the game in terms of doing the pre-scouting than people might think, um, in my view. And secondly, um, when you talk about uh, more broadly, like, should you be worried showing something? Mm. I, I wouldn't worry about it for a couple of games. Um, and it's funny, like, you look at Columbus's power play this year, and it's one of my favorite stories of the year. <laughs> but it took forever for people to kind of catch on to it. Right. And, you know, I watched them play against a team that was, um, you know, opposite conference, so they wouldn't see Columbus a lot. And the first game, you know, it looked like Columbus caught them with some things. And then the second game, it looked like they suddenly, and they played fairly quickly in succession. Mm -hmm. And the second game, it looked like, you know, they were like, okay, here's what they're going to do. Let's take that away. And, you know, and and I think Columbus now has had the league maybe catch up to them a little bit on the power play, because I know that power play, that first unit's been struggling a bit. But it takes longer than people think. And if you're a coach and you only have so many hours in the day, you know, for every hour that you invest in your team, you're going to get payoff for however many games you have left in the season. Whereas if for every hour you invest in uh, the opponent, particularly if it's an opponent the other conference, you know, your payoff is, um, is relatively limited compared to what you could get putting your time in your own team. Yeah. You know that meme that that's online where it's like, find someone who looks at you the way blah, 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 looks at whoever. There should be a meme that's like, find someone who talks about you the way Tyler Dello talks about the Columbus Blue Jackets power play. <laughs> <laughs> you, you love that thing, man. I've heard you talk about it like 15 times. Well, I just, you know, like it's, it, to me, it's such a fascinating thing. Like it's, um, it, it, it's fascinating to me that it was sort of a power play. Because I like one of the things I like about power plays, I find fascinating, is I'm not sure that necessarily you want your, you know, your quote unquote best players on them. Mm-hmm. Like it's about finding people who can fill a role and do a job. Right. And so, like you know, that Columbus power play, like they're you know they're good players on there, but Sam Gagne is not a star. Right. And but but on that you know on in the context of that power play, doing what he was asked to do, you know, he could do it very well. 
you know, Nick Polino is not a big star. Um, although he's probably more famous than, you know, he's a better player than Gagne, but, but, you know, he was killing it in there. Same with Atkinson. Like, like to me, the story of that or the interesting thing about coaching and, you know, where you can identify things that you can maybe do well is when you can identify a player like, you know, I don't know, anyone could say, hey, you know who would be good in the power play? Sidney Crosby. It, it, it's, a little more, um, it's a little more challenging to go, hey, you know who would be good on the power play? Um, Sam Gagne, our fourth line center. Like that to me is, um, you know, I like stuff like that because it kind of suggests opportunities for teams where they can find advantages in the future. Yep. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's 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 the ultimate example of just kind of the the, the parts just adding up to being something completely greater. Um, let's uh, let's pivot a bit and talk about some of these uh, the rules or maybe the 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 ones they haven't been talking about at the GM meetings that we'd like them to discuss. And I, I don't know. I, I was completely baffled by the fact that they viewed what's going on in the NHL landscape right now and just said we're perfectly cool with just keeping the entire offside rule the way it is right now because I I think it's just like so fraught with just uh problems and loopholes that keep negatively impacting the game that are pretty easily solvable but they just don't really seem interested in in addressing them at this point yeah I'd like to see I'd like to see the uh I'd like to see a time limit if nothing else put on the offside challenge Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'd like to see the league look at maybe shifting a TV timeout to cover it. Like, say we said to the linesman, or we said, okay, you have two minutes and 30 seconds to look at it. And beyond that, um, you don't get extra time. Like, at that point, the, uh, the iPad or whatever they're using shuts off, and you have to make a decision. Because I think you can stare at it forever at some, you know, sometimes trying to parse it. But if you can't make a decision in two minutes and 30 seconds, to me, it seems obviously inconclusive. Mm -hmm. Rather than staring at it for another five minutes, you know, let's just have the car on the ice stand, get on with the game, and we've gotten a TV timeout out of the way. And and, and I think there would be some real benefit there from a game flow perspective. Um, And it's just like, like, there's a balance. And it's funny, like, we talk about this in law, but there's like a balance between getting the right decision, uh, which is obviously something that law and I suspect officiating value and finality, right? Like at some point it needs to be over. And some of these offside reviews, um, I think that the value of finality and, and, and ending it is not, uh, not being taken enough into account. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's so frustrating to me just because it seems like they're making a, a big problem out of something that doesn't really, isn't really there. It doesn't really need to be such a problem. Like I just think the entire concept of, I, I know you were tweeting about this, but it's a great point about how, like, why wouldn't you be allowed to open it up as soon as you're in the offensive zone so that you can kind of regroup and maybe um, reload in the neutral zone and then come back in with speed in the offensive zone. Like that would open up the space because instead you're just kind of cramming everyone into this small little quadrant of the ice, which doesn't really seem to make sense sense intuitively. Yeah, no. So just to clarify what you're talking about, because you kind of jumped in there without... Uh... Without clarifying, and I, I was talking on uh, on I, I put out sort of a, a note on Twitter the other day, talking about um, how I'd like to see the offside rule changed, which is I would like to see um, I call it making the blue line permeable. Hmm. In that, once a team has gained the offensive zone, as long as they had two guys in there, I'm okay with uh, with letting them take the puck back out to the red line. And for me, it's an issue of space. Um, I think that the game, there's, you know, there's big players, they're well-coached, 
They know how to take away space on the ice. And the blue line almost becomes sort of a, a punitive thing where it's holding teams in. It's like having a ceiling that's too low. It's like, it's like being in a basement with a six-foot ceiling and you're constantly ducking. And, you know, so what happens, you know, if you watch a game and, and watch like an extended sequence of offensive zone play and just watch how the defensive team, you know, moves around and they're kind of in like, uh, like a little group of five guys and they move as a unit and they're, they're just, you know, they're aiming to take away space and they've made the calculation that doing that kind of prevents anything dangerous from happening. Um, and so they can stay in their tight little unit and not take risks and, and wait to the point where the offensive team gets into a bad spot and force the turnover. Now, what I, what I think the league should look at happening uh, to try and increase some offense is, you know, make that blue line permeable. Because imagine if the puck goes back to the point, and if you're the defenseman and you're looking and you see two or three bodies on their team between you and the net, and you don't really want to go D to D because they've got a guy out high on the far side of their, you know, box or five-man unit. So, so what do you have? You have a shot that's probably going to get blocked, or you can go into the corner. What if you could just pull up into the neutral zone, and, yep. and your partner can pull up into the neutral zone, and one more of your guys can pull up? And all of a sudden, you're going to tear apart that kind of five-man unit that defends mm-hmm. and create all sorts of space um, for wingers or forwards to kind of cut in between the lines and take a pass. Or if they decide they're going to stay in that unit, you, know, you can you know, pull back and, and come in with speed. And all of a sudden, they're going to be trying to defend flat-footed. And it's interesting. Like This is, to me, an argument that flows from data. Like If you look at what teams do shooting percentage-wise after they win an offensive zone face-off, it's pretty low. And the reason is because the other team has five guys behind the puck defending. Mm-hmm. And you know I'm, I'm not sure this would work, but it seems to me that if you could open up some space and make it harder for teams to have those five guys behind the puck, um, you know, you might be able to, uh, to bump up the shooting percentages, get some more goals in the game. And frankly, like I think hockey's at its most exciting when it's kind of a rush game with guys working with speed. Right. Like it's, it's, you know, it was so funny. You remember that LA St. Louis playoff series a few years back? Mm-hmm. And so many people were like, Oh, this is great. This is great. And I was like, this is 60 minutes of guys slamming each other along the boards. Like, the puck maybe got off the boards for like 30 seconds a game. And otherwise it was just like, oh, I thought it was, I, I didn't enjoy watching it. Yep. I didn't think it was, I, you know, like I didn't, I, I don't know. Like people talk about liking that kind of hockey. And, you know, I accept that sometimes you got to play it. But, but I think from the league's perspective, like you can compare this to basketball, right? Like you remember how the NBA 15 years ago, maybe it's a little more, but like they had those like mixed teams that were just like, you know, uh, they were just sort of fight or not fight, but they're very physical, tight, yep. defensive, and scores were like eighty-one, eighty. Mm-hmm. And you know, like the NBA was was not particularly popular at the time. And then you know they found a way to really open up the game and you know create shots. And all of a sudden, like I'm not even a basketball guy. Like the sport, I, I don't, I don't, I've never followed it particularly strongly. But man, it's exciting and it has a lot of buzz. And, and it's because I think like the NBA kind of gets it. Like there's things that are the essence of the game and the essence of the game in the NBA to me is five guys on each team, two baskets and go at it. Um, and beyond that, you're trying to create a product that makes people sit up and go, holy cow, this is exciting. 
And, you know, so to go back to that rule change, really get people to sit up and go, wow, this is fantastic. Um, you know, because I think it would create more skating, more speed, more, more opportunities for skill. And, you know, series like that L.A. San Jose or that L.A. Uh, Saint Louis, San yeah. I don't ever need to see that again. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, that's something that NBA has done a really good job of, of sort of realizing mm-hmm. what what it has going for it in terms of star power and what, what gets people excited and then kind of modeling their game or allowing it based on the rules to, to kind of cater to that and let those stars shine. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's so mind blowing to me because you look at the, just the sport of hockey and it's, I think everyone would agree. It's like such a cool, exciting sport that has so many possibilities, but then I feel like the NHL just hasn't really done uh, anything to like allow it to kind of spread its wings and fly and really reach its potential. And I think this is just like a, a small little thing, but I think it would go a long way or at least provide some new interesting opportunities. I mean, we see it kind of in three on three OT. Like I know it's an enti- entirely different animal, but you see when guys are in the offensive zone and maybe the, the three defenders get settled and they kind of lose some of their, some of their momentum there or, or, or don't have any obvious passing lanes. <clears throat> They just pass the puck back out into the neutral zone and regroup, maybe change on the fly and then come back in with speed and create a nice opportunity. And I think that we could see a lot more of that at 5 on 5 if they just made this one little adjustment. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And it's funny, like, you know, you talk about other sports, like it's not just basketball, um, you know, like other sports, you know, like there's their sport, like baseball is a very traditional sport and they made some changes to try and enhance, uh, you know, excitement and offense in the past like they dropped uh i think it was 67 they dropped the pitcher's mound after that year mm-hmm. or maybe 68 but they had like a year of the pitcher and um i think i think i think yaz won the batting title with a 301 and and, and they were like this is no good drop the mound the american league introduced the designated hitter which i'll be honest i'm still a little sketchy on but uh but that was them you know looking for ways you know without violating the spirit or the essence of the game to, to make it a more exciting product. Um, you go to, um, so that's that, uh, soccer. In, after the 1990 World Cup, soccer banned the back pass to the goalkeeper. His teams would just kick it back to the goalie, and he'd pick it up, and it was boring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, soccer is a pretty traditional sport, and yet they kind of recognize the need to, uh, to make a change there. And similarly, like soccer, you know, even going back 10 years before that, they recognized how the incentives of um, the point system, because it was two, two for a win, one for a draw, were, were influencing what teams tried to do. And, and they were willing to make changes to, you know, try and pursue a more exciting game. So, you know, like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with coaches doing everything they can to win within the context of what the current game is like every it's fun you know it's popular to kind of bash coaches mm-hmm. and go you know the coaches wreck the game the coaches wreck the game well the coach wants to keep being a coach right and you know you can't blame the coach for trying to figure out ways in which you know he can maximize his chances of continuing to be a coach um what i what i do think you can do is you know the league can say okay well coaches are going to coach but we as a league, you know, um, we don't care about any one particular individual coach and in, in, in his careers or, you know, if, he, if he's able to keep his job. So we're continually going to be looking for ways to, uh, to inject offense into the game and make it harder to defend. Because to me, the balance has gone way too much towards, uh, towards the defending. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a good place for uh, 
for us to, or one last point to hit on before we get out of here. And that's a little bit of a slow and recap because, uh, I imagine a lot of the listeners, uh, weren't able to attend for whatever reason. And, and, or I haven't really done anything on this show so far to, to help recap it. Um, I don't know. What, what was, what was, what was your favorite part of the Sloan experience and just being there? Um, there were a couple things. Uh, I always like just sort of seeing different panels and, um, I always like seeing different panels and seeing stuff like, um, seeing stuff like um, uh, people from other sports and talking to them. So, you know, it was a good chance for me to talk to some guys I knew a little bit, like, uh, oh, darn it, Seth, is his last name Partnow? Seth Partnow, yeah, friend of the podcast. Seth, and, and I find that you get a lot of ideas from other sports about stuff that they're working on, that you go, oh, yeah, I could see how this translates to hockey. And I think it goes the other way, too. Like, it's, I think it's out of fashion now in soccer, but for a while, like, people paid attention to PDO in soccer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like PDO was never intended to be an endpoint. It's sort of a point and you go, well, how can we improve, improve it? But it's funny, like, like it was so bizarre reading soccer stuff five years ago and they're talking about PDO. And I was thinking, this is, uh, this is, what's his name? Brian King moaning about contracts. <laughs> and now there's Europeans, you know, complaining about their soccer teams uh, on the basis of PDO, which was, which was bizarre. But um, the stuff that really stuck out for me this year, like one thing, Sport Logic had a paper there, and for people who aren't familiar with them, they're a data company that tracks hockey games through video. So, um, so what they'll do is, like, they, my understanding of their tech is that you know they put the hockey game on a computer screen, and the computer watches the game. You can tell I'm not a super technical guy, <laughs> and the computer tracks what's happening in the game. And so, you know, they're a fairly new company, and they're starting to build stuff on top of that. And they had a paper there that I thought was really interesting. It was talking about, you know, identifying contributions to scoring through what are called Markov chains, which, as I understand it, are it's kind of like this happens and this happens and this happens. And at every opportunity, there's maybe 30, I'm picking a number of the air, things that could happen. And if different things happen, um, there's a different likelihood of, uh, of scoring. So say, I, say I'm coming up the ice on you, Dimitri, and I've got the puck at the blue line. Mm-hmm. If I beat you and get in, and say I beat you and you know, I go wide and get around you. That would never happen, Tyler. Well, I don't know. Can you skate? Um, I, I, I play a physical physical brand of hockey. I'd, I'd, I'd knock you off the puck, I think. Yeah? I, uh, probably not. I can't, I, I can't skate at all. I suck at hockey. You'd probably beat okay. me. Oh, uh, all right. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm not great, but I can skate you know, forwards and backwards. So I feel confident that I could get around you. But yep. but. You know, imagine how the probability of my team scoring the next goal changes if I get around you versus if you, you know, knock me on my butt and take the puck and shoot it up ice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, it's a change in what's, what's likely to happen next. And so they're basically working on developing stuff there. And, you know, what was, like, I had some quibbles with it, and I, I won't go too far into it because I think they're doing good work, and it's easy sometimes for people to kind of seize on the criticisms. Um, you know, I do think they'd benefit from involving some, some people with a little more hockey-specific knowledge in it. But what was really cool to me was seeing how, you know, I think they did a pretty good job with, with little hockey knowledge of identifying specific skills of players. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they looked at a player, it was Taylor Hall, and they said, you know, this guy is good at, you know, breaking out of his own end with the puck, as I understood it, and also forcing turnovers in the offensive zone. And I thought that was just a tremendous conclusion to reach, from, um, you know, just using a computer without having a person injected along the way. Yep. 
Um, and, and it's it's tremendously exciting because it suggests you know there's some real potential for their technology as far as identifying traits in players. And then you can start getting into questions of synergy and whatnot and do certain players. Like if you've got a guy who's great at carrying the puck out and great at gaining the offensive zone, should you try and put him with players for whom that's not their strength? And I suspect the answer to that's maybe yes. If you're coaching against them, you know, do you want to try and get out your guy who's great at denying zone entries uh, on his side of the ice? Or do you want to just concede that you're going to give up a bunch and maybe save that guy for the marginal case? Like, There's a ton of stuff you can do once you start to identify that. And so I looked at that sport logic paper and I was like, yeah, you know, like, you know, there's there's issues here, but it's very interesting to me that they've identified strengths of a player solely on the basis of computer technology. Um, and, and so, you know, that I thought was really exciting as far as where is hockey's going. Um, you know, w- what I think will be good is once the data starts to make its way to people who have some some background in hockey analytics um, and, you know, even them working with the, uh, you know, the PhDs, I think you're going to see at that point some really interesting findings start to pour out. Yeah. Yeah. That's the next step. Just sort of uh, getting access to the data so that we can test whether it's uh, whether they're like repeatable skills and whether they're ultimately meaningful. But just the pure capabilities of of the infrastructure they've set up is is amazing. I mean, yeah, it's uh, I'm excited to see where it goes in the next few years. And I think you hit the nail on the head with with regards to the, the benefits of slow. And it was just kind of cool uh, bumping into people from different sports and trying to get ideas of how we can take some stuff that other leagues are doing well and trying to apply them to ours. So so, uh, Tyler, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time to chat, man. I'm, I've been trying to get you on the show for a while. You were, you were, uh, you were a little gun shy at start, but I think it, uh, it went pretty well. I'm elusive. Nice yes, you're very, very elusive. Yes. I finally caught you. Now I just got to get you to follow me back on Twitter and we'll, uh, we'll really be cooking with fire. Ah, uh, I already <laughs> told you, you know, there's, 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 there's a system there to me. There's a method to the madness. There's a method to the madness. Thank yes. you. You you get it. I, I, obviously, by not doing the P- now, maybe I'm wrong here because I, I was declining to do the PDO cast. So it may be that I'm bad at uh, at, at, at the brand stuff. Hmm. And uh, you know, not following you is just uh, another example of my uh, failures. There. Yeah, well, you're, I think you're just you're you're tactically playing hard to get, and it's uh it's it's working. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's intriguing me. <laughs> yeah. Well, there there you have it. All right, man. Uh, let's uh yeah, everyone can check out your work on uh on the athletic and and all the stuff you're doing there, and we'll uh, we'll make sure to get you back on the show sometime in the future. Now that uh you've been on and seen that it wasn't so bad. Yes, uh, yeah, and uh, links to work and sometimes the odd graph or whatnot are at Yellow Hockey on Twitter. Mm-hmm. All right, chat soon, man. Yeah, thanks, bud. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.